create lasting change, inspire others, and make a difference. You have joined the Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donaldson, and each week you will hear from distinguished co-hosts and guests as they share insights into impacting our culture from your neighborhood to the nations. And today we have Doug Weed, who has probably inspired more people around the world than any other person alive. Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author and former advisor to two American presidents. He served as special assistant to the president in the George H.W. Bush White House. Uh, his books are well known for going to the primary sources. Uh, he has interviewed six American presidents, seven first ladies, 19 presidential children, and 12 presidential siblings. In 1970, he co-founded the Charity Awards, which I've been had the joy of being a part of and was also part of founding Mercy Corps, which has distributed well over $2 billion of emergency food and medical supplies around the world. Doug, welcome. Hey, thank you, Dave. Great to be with you. And I have with me as my sidekick, somebody who you may know, his name is Scott Weed. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Hey, Dad. Great to be here with you. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be with you, son. Good to hear your voice. Well, Doug, your book, Inside Trump's White House, a blockbuster, and we're going to be talking about that uh, in another podcast. But can you give us an update on how our listeners can get a copy of it? Thank you for mentioning that. It's available um, in any bookstore and uh, Walmart and Costco and uh, Target and all the outlets. Wonderful. Amazon. <laughs> uh, Doug, uh, this focus of this podcast is for leaders. It could be business leaders, pastors, lay leaders. Uh, but uh, I want to start off by asking you a, a deep theological question uh, because uh, you have greatly heightened, heightened, because you have greatly heightened and expanded my library of movies, uh, some of the <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh, most fun times we've had together is watching an old movie or you know a espionage spy movie. And what is your favorite movie and why? <laughs> you know that's a moving target. <laughs> it's hard to say, but I really enjoyed uh, the BBC. Uh, series on uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Not not the movies. They can be pretty pretty tough and pretty boring. But the uh, there have been several movies made of John Le Carre's uh, novel. But the BBC uh, miniseries starring uh, Alec Guinness uh, as George Smiley. I really really enjoy that because he's kind of a nerdy guy. And he's not the most, even the most brilliant, and yet he he uh, unravels the mystery really with his integrity more than anything else. So I kind of enjoyed it. And you know, I've watched that with you, uh, the first uh, season of it, and absolutely loved it as well. Now you you've got to be one of the most well-read uh, people on the planet. How many books do you think that you have read? 
I don't know. Uh, because we're getting rid of books now, we're all going digital. I've been cleaning out my library, and I've got a good feel uh, because of the shelf space and some of the books we're selling. And it, it looks like over 10,000 books, So, but uh, we've reduced that substantially. But uh, the, the sad thing is, Dave, I, I read history, and you only live 70, 80 years— uh, and there's thousands of years of history. So you find these wonderful stories that you never even knew existed of real people living their real lives and dealing with real problems, and you didn't even know about it. And it, it just uh, it seems so extravagant, but God keeps track of it all. How many books have you written? Well... <laughs> I don't know. We say 30. We've been saying that for many years because it just sounds a little far-fetched to say more than that, but probably close to 40. But I'll have to tell you, many of them are really awful. <laughs> so if you ask me how many good books I've written, I think just a few. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, com <laughs> Believe me. Believe me. <laughs> well, Compassionate Touch. You know, that right there is an example of your God-given talent. Uh, what a book, you know, that really influenced the world as it relates to helping uh, the needy in India. And as a result of that book, it has birthed so many different ministries. And uh, that's how God has used, really, your, your anointing with that keyboard. And uh, I'm grateful that I've had a front row seat to see some of those uh, beautiful, magical works, you know, come to life like this one, you know, inside the Trump White House. Uh, Scott, you have a question for your dad. Yeah, I do. Dad, I'm really interested to know in Scripture of all the characters, which would you say is your favorite? Which character do you closely align with and why? I think like most uh, people, actually, uh, probably David, and the reason is he, uh, he expresses himself in the Psalms. So he goes through, as you know, moments of deep despair and moments of doubt and moments of questioning God and moments of great praise and joy uh, with God and profound moments. I think of Psalms 103.10. Think of this. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And David writes, as far as the skies above the earth, the heavens are above the earth, so far hath you removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. So this is his understanding of God's mercy and uh, that's pretty profound. Yeah, I remember growing up hearing you share about David and the princess and, and talking a lot about him. And, uh, of course, uh, I've known you sure loved him. What about other characters in history? Uh, you know, can include the Bible, but just people that you have loved to study or have really intrigued you throughout the years. Is there any historical figures that just jump out at you as favorites? Well, you know, this will sound controversial to a lot of people, but I'm just absolutely fascinated with Donald Trump. 
I know he offends a lot of people. Uh, he's uh, not a politician, and he's not a diplomat. Uh, but I've just been truly fascinated with him. I believe in hundreds of years from now, long after we're gone, all our, our grandchildren have died, I think historians will come back and either they will hate the Trump family, like the Borgias or the Medicis of, of medieval Europe, uh, because they're so, so wealthy and politically connected, or they'll love them, like the Kennedys or the Rockefellers, but they will be remembered, and they're fascinating people to study. And I'm especially impressed because I worked for many, many years, for 30, 40 years with the Bush family, and I had developed quite an understanding of how uh, how the establishment works and how they make their money. And to see Donald Trump come in and disrupt that and restore income to the poorest of the poor, to African-Americans and minorities that are often left behind, to see all of that uh, happening is really impressive to me. Now, Scott, you know, I listened to your dad uh, speak, uh, you know, David and the Princess many times in coliseums. And I actually memorized it and I tried giving it a few times and it, it backfired because afterwards people would come up and say, that sounded like Doug Weed's message. <laughs> I said it was word for word. So that's the hopefully the greatest form of flattery is mimicry or at least a young man trying to mimic uh, Doug Weed. What are you have so many favorite historical stories you've shared uh, with Scott and me over the years? What are name a few that, that you just love to share? Mm, mm. I have to backtrack and say that I've I've heard you give your story and your testimony of your family and what happened and the people who touched your life. And it's moved me very, very deeply. Uh, Dave, what an incredible story of grace and just, uh, just, uh, uh, amazing. I guess one of the stories, uh, it's a repeated story throughout history that really fascinates me is what I would describe as the man in the shadows I've noticed in studying presidents and writing books about presidents and their families that in every presidential family, there is a very ambitious parent, a mom or a dad. Usually it's the mother. Sometimes it's the dad. And they focus on one of their children and they say to themselves, this is the kid. This is the kid that's going to do everything that I could have done and wanted to do. And that child becomes the focus of their energy and their investment in life. And time and time again throughout history, that child fails or that child dies or that <laughs> it's just uncanny. But there's another child and that's the child in the shadows that the parents are overlooking. He's looking on with envy at the chosen child and that child from the shadows uh, becomes president of the United States. We see it in the Eisenhower family, in the Kennedy family, in the Bush family. It's not necessarily the oldest child that's chosen. In George Washington's case, it was the oldest. His dad, Augustine Washington, was dying. And all the money, all the education, everything went to Lawrence Washington, his oldest son. All his hopes 
were on Lawrence, who was there at his deathbed. And he had a second son, a backup son, that also got the education in England and got training in the ironworks, just in case something happened to Lawrence. And then at the foot of the bed was 11-year-old George Washington, who got nothing. When his dad died, uh, the mother gave him his uh, equipment for um, measuring properties and uh, that was his only inheritance from his dad. But within a few years, Lawrence was dead, and George Washington became this huge figure in history. Just a few miles from where his dad lay dying would be the Washington Memorial rising in marble and a whole city named after him, and Augustine had no idea. And you find that in the Bible. Moses says, don't you mean Aaron? Are, are you sure you know what you're doing here? Don't you mean Aaron? And the prophet Samuel says, I can't figure this out. Is this all your children? And Jesse says, yep, that this is everybody. I just can't figure it out. I was so sure. There's no other children? No. Well, there's David. There's our youngest when he's out with the sheep. Go get him, Samuel says. So it's not John uh, Joseph Kennedy. It's Jack Kennedy. It's the unexpected. It's not Milton. It's Dwight David Eisenhower. It's not Jeb, who was a millionaire in real estate and the anointed son. It was uh, George W., who was an alcoholic and uh, leading a bankrupt oil company in Texas. And uh, God looks through the shadows to find people to raise up to do great things. And don't count yourself out because God doesn't count you out. That's powerful. Now, you've interviewed kings, queens, you know, world leaders, you know, some of the most influential and interesting people. Uh, I remember uh, seeing the uh, interview Dan Rather and Ted Kennedy. And so it's pretty wide, uh, your, your uh, reservoir of interviews. Who was your favorite interview uh, thus far and why? <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna like this but, it, but I, okay I other you've already you. you've already said <laughs> donald trump so i should say yeah. uh besides uh, uh donald trump and his family yeah because he's got such an outrageous personality <laughs> and he's so funny he's just absolutely so comical and so funny that it's pretty hard to top that but other than uh uh, I've enjoyed uh, long conversations with George W. Bush. He has a great sense of humor. And, uh, <laughs> and so I've enjoyed that. And you remember when we had Gerald Ford at our house, I think you were there and your brother was there. And, and Scott will remember him. He, he was very, very interesting because they made fun of him on TV. They, they treated him like he was dumb. They, many of these presidents, they treat like they're dumb. Uh, but they're not dumb. They're smart. Gerald Ford was a policy wonk, and he knew a lot. Reagan was so nice and gentile and, and a, a real gentleman. And uh, I, I have great admiration for these presidents. And having now interviewed six of them, I've tried to find what the common denominators are. And one of the common denominators is uh, they're good listeners, every one of them including Donald Trump, which really surprised me. We were in the middle of talking about Andrew Jackson, and I said, you know about his wife? He said, uh, tell me, tell me. 
So I told him the story and he kept asking questions and he had me doing all the talking during that story. And I was thinking like, hey, we're wasting time here. I want to ask you the questions. But that's typical of, uh, of great leaders. They're good listeners. Speaking of that, I'm going to say the names of six people, six uh, world leaders, and you being an historian, uh, share with us the first thing that comes to mind. Now, I know you could give a whole history on each of these, but you know what comes to mind when I mention these world leaders? Winston Churchill. Mm, t- uh, tenacity. FDR. Uh, shrewd. He was very shrewd. A lot, I've only begun to discover some of the things he did. I had a first take that he was a socialist and liberal and liberal policies, but uh, his handling during World War II of gold, it allowed the huge transfer of wealth from the British Empire, which ruled the world for a hundred years. And that gold came to the United States and hard currency he demanded. Before he had Lend-Lease, he demanded full payment in gold, and it made America rich. Now, you may recognize this person because you were named after him, Douglas MacArthur. Yeah, he's, he was uh, such a great strategist, and he can show you why you don't have to be in a hurry. When the Japanese conquered all those islands, he came up with the idea that we don't have to go in there and have all our boys die taking back each island step by step by step will just bypass the islands and they're trapped. So it's like the Japanese were suddenly trapped on their islands. They were like prisoner of war camps. They ruled the island, but they they couldn't get off. (laughs) And that was very clever as he took his steps towards Japan in winning World War II. JFK. Well... You know, he had uh, a real setback with uh, Vienna and then with the Bay of Pigs, but he was able to keep his cool and uh, keep smiling. Ronald Reagan did that, too, and it, it allowed him to overcome it and become extremely popular. Uh, it could have been really a, a tough presidency because of those early mistakes, but that shows you the power of of charisma and and the power of uh, uh, keeping your dignity. Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, uh, iron will. There, there's an example of somebody. We get defeated. We say, well, it's not our time. It's not, you know, our ideas are old fashioned. There, there's no hope for us. But uh, Margaret Thatcher took on the whole establishment, went against the grain, spoke the truth, clearly, without fear or hesitation, and she turned the whole country around. And Ronald Reagan. Yeah, just amazing. It's it's wonderful for me to see him finally applauded and credited, but uh, he, like, uh, just as I described Maggie Thatcher, you could say it in spades with him. He believed the Cold War could be won. And that nobody else did. Uh, School teachers in Holland were telling their children, it doesn't matter what college you go to because the world isn't going to exist by the time you go to college. Everybody thought it would end in uh, nuclear annihilation. 
And uh, he called Marxism as wrong. He knew it was wrong. It wasn't popular to do that, but he did. And it, at Reykjavik, he walked away. He said, no, I didn't get the deal. We didn't get the deal. He walked away. And it, uh, the media was furious. They were howling. They were, but uh, he ended the Cold War. Hey, Dad, I have a question for you. You've studied all these world leaders. If you were to look at all their lives and try to find like a common thread, uh, if, if you were to like call out what the biggest stumbling block would be for success, and how do leaders today avoid that? What would it be? Well, I don't know really, Scott, how to answer that, but I can tell you what the biggest stumbling block for my success has been. Uh, and that is to underestimate what I should try for and what I should try to do. Uh, I never, for example, would have written a book about presidential election because there were too many other great writers who would be writing on that subject and I couldn't compete with them. But I did get enough nerve to say, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to win this election and Bill Clinton will be the first man, not the first lady. And I know all about uh, presidential families, and I could be the authority to write the book, First Man, Bill Clinton and Hillary's White House. And so I started writing that book, and I had enough uh, confidence to, to write that book. And then, wouldn't you know it, Donald Trump <laughs> won the election. And I called my publisher, said, what are we going to do? And I was going to lose everything. And my publisher said, well, you know, what, uh, you got any ideas? I said, yes, I got an idea. Let me make it about the election instead of about Bill Clinton. I'll use the first part of what I've written. She said, you get me 300 words. I'm having dinner with the publisher tonight. Get me 300 words in the title. So I came back that night with the title Game of Thorns and 300 words about the 2016 election. I got it. That gave me enough confidence, Scott, to walk into Ivanka Trump's office to sit down and say, every president gets an oil painting, and every president, if they want it, gets an official history. I would like to write that history of the Trump White House. And she called back the following Friday from New York, and she said, congratulations, I've talked to the president, you can write your book. That would never have happened if I hadn't asked for it. And I've always been too shy and too timid to ask. And I'm seeing that that's, that's how Donald Trump becomes president. And you're not, and I'm not, because he, uh, he knows how to make a big decision and go for it. <laughs> wow. So, Dad, that's fantastic. If you only had five minutes to advise an emerging leader, what would you say to them? Wow. I, I guess the, the advice when I interviewed Ivanka Trump, I said, what was it about your dad that what makes him different? And she said, well, he goes for the home run, not the single. You know, he's famous for saying, if you're going to think anyway, you might as well think big. So I guess I would encourage them to dream big. Think of this, unto him who is able to do, exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or even think 
according to the power that worketh in you, unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. According to the power that worketh in you. So there's power working in us. And God is able to do far beyond anything we'd ever have the nerve to even ask for. Uh, Doug, one of the sermons uh, that you've shared over the years that, among others, probably has had one of the greatest impact on me, and I know many, many millions of others, is this whole principle of fof and fop. So fof, fear of failure, fear of people. What would you say to people right now that are listening about that principle? Yeah, those are the two great obstacles. Uh, fear of people, what will they say? And what will they think of me? And the fear of failure. And the a answer is they're, they're both uh, illusions. People don't care. They don't, they're not thinking about you. And they're not having a party to celebrate your success. And they're not having a party to celebrate your failure. They don't care about you. So you're going to spend your whole life trying to impress people who for two cents would walk right by you. So, so impress God, impress yourself, impress your family. Do something for the people that really love you. And don't be live in fear of people because you'll never satisfy them and you'll never please them. In failure, the greatest people who've ever lived have failed. It's certainly true of all the presidents. We could go through every one of them. But uh, some of the greatest business, I mean, you think of Disney, he comes to mind right away with his multiple bankruptcies. But the, the best way to deal with the fear of failure is fail. <laughs> Get it over with and just keep going. Uh, I've heard you share uh, this story at churches, which, by the way, uh, people think in terms of you speaking on Fox and other cable network television stations and radio uh, but a lot of pastors love bringing you in to speak. And you were speaking at our church, and you closed with this story of, is it Guinevere from uh, King King Arthur? <laughs> yeah. Could you share that story? Yeah, yeah that's from the uh, Idols of the Kings. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a great, a great story. It's... Uh, Guinevere uh, commits adultery with Lancelot, and so she's sinned, and she's in great despair and guilt and misery, and she's destroyed Camelot, and uh, she could blame it on the lusty month of May, and she could blame it on um, Lancelot, Sir Lancelot. It takes two to commit adultery. She could blame it on her husband, King Arthur, who neglected her. But she's a rare person who assumes guilt and responsibility herself. She knows that she herself had something to do with this. So she uh, re retires to a nunnery, and she's locked in a dungeon and fed bread and water and at her own request. And there she languishes. And then... Many years later, Lancelot, uh, King Arthur, her husband, comes for her, for her kiss, for battle. And she's in this cell, and she can hear the footsteps on the cobblestones 
outside, and she can tell that's her husband, that's her sovereign, Arthur the king. He's come back for her kiss. He's got his armies outside ready to go into battle. He just wants the blessing of his queen, to whom he's still married. So they can't get the door open. They have to call a locksmith, and they have to call a blacksmith, and they have to burn open this door to get inside, and their lanterns fill the room, and the rats go scurry into the wall. And here is Guinevere, once the most beautiful woman in Camelot, and she's an old hag, and her hair is (laughs) tangled, and her fingernails are uncut and dirty, and... Arthur picks her up in his arms and he kisses her for good luck for battle. And as he lets go of her, he sees the shame in her face and he says these words, the sin is sinned, it is over, I forgave you long ago. And then he sweeps from the room and he goes into battle and Guinevere's just a puddle of tears there. But the point is, that this is the message of Christianity, that the sin is sin, that it's already happened and I forgave you long ago. Don't spend your life in a dungeon uh, and in torment over the mistakes you've made in your life. Get out into the sunshine and fight. There's battles to win, and there's a horse to ride on, and there's a sword and a shield, and it's time to get on with your life. What a great way to end this. Uh, Doug, I've had leaders ask me, you know, is it even possible to get Doug Weed to speak at my church? And if, you know, and you're still speaking at churches, right? Yeah, I haven't been as much, but now with this book on the verge of being released, then I'd love to be in the churches. I'd love to get inspiration from being in them. And, of course, love to share the message that God's given me, a message of hope and vision, that great things are possible. And uh, how do we get not only a copy, but copies of Inside Trump's White House? Well, they're available uh, insidetrumpswhitehouse.com. And that takes you to any—you can go to Target or Amazon or just all kinds of outlets, Barnes & Noble, and uh, it can tell you where the nearest bookstore is if you want to go into the bookstore, too. Outstanding. Doug, uh, thank you. And Scott, thanks for co-hosting today. Yeah, great to be with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy listening to Influencers on the Charisma Podcast Network. Join us next week for another thought-provoking episode. And remember to use your influence to move people closer to Jesus.